Amen. Good morning, church family. I want to extend our Christian love and sympathy to Katie and her family. Her grandmother passed away over the weekend. And uh, many of you probably know her parents as well. Paul and Lisa's Paul's mother. And so be praying for them as they have a graveside tomorrow. Her and Justin will be traveling over there. So traveling mercies will be appreciated. All right, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to please take them and turn with me to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Uh, We're going to be looking at a passage here, uh, and it might strike you as odd, uh, considering the context here. But as we think about this passage here, I want to set this in a sort of, you know, you got meta or large context of Luke. And then you got kind of the micro things that are happening there. So I want to make sure we're understanding Luke and it's kind of meta-narrative here. It's big overall teaching and preaching that's happening here. What is Jesus saying here? What is, what is it saying to us? So anytime we come to a text, and this has got a, one verse in particular that's a little hard to interpret, but I think we can work through it together here today. Whenever we're trying to understand a passage, we're asking three questions. And those three questions are, what does the text say? What does the text mean? And how does it apply? Those three things are what we're always asking of a text in the Bible. What does it say? What does it mean? And how does it apply? So those are what we're going to try to, try to look at as we see this today. Um, as I prepare to preach this, for those of you who may not have been here last time, let me kind of, and those of you who have slept since last time, let me give you a quick refresher. Uh, Jesus has been spurred into about four parables by some murmuring of the Pharisees, okay, back at the beginning of chapter 15. And in these parables, we had the parable of the sheep, the 99 and the 1. Then we had the parable of the lost coin. Then we had the parable of the, who remembers what was next? Prodigal son, right? And then we had the parable of the shrewd or uh, dishonest manager, right? So one thing I want to highlight here as we go into this passage, because this kind of feels out of place since it's like a series of parables, but it is connected to what came before and what comes after. Think of the last two parables. The parable of the prodigal son, one major theme that we saw unfold in that was what? Money, right? Money was the, a thing that was in the forefront. Give me the money that belongs to me. And in the parable of the shrewd or the, um, uh, the thief, right? Lessons from a thief that we saw last time. He, he takes a manager, a good manager's money, and he spends it on himself. He wastes it. So money is a theme that is there. And so there's a, money's a theme in the two parables preceding this text, and money is a theme here. But then also, this passage is going to talk about adultery and marriage. And so as we look at this, we're going to be like, what does one have to do with the other? But I think as we look at this passage closer, we will understand what it is Jesus is saying to us, and what it is Dr. Luke is trying to convey to us in this writing. So hear the Word of God, church. Here's what it says. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Uh, For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, that's John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. That's the one that's kind of hard. 16 is the one we're going to spend a little time on today. It's a little bit hard to interpret. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. 
Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word because the grass withers and the flowers fade. Say it with me if you know it, church. But the word of our God endures forever. Pastor C, why do you make us say that every week? It's because I want everybody to have a framework that they operate for the Bible, right? And you've got kids in here, and those kids need to hear that truth over and over again. And not just kids, we need to hear that truth over and over again, don't we? All right, here we go. Let's dive in. Let's dive in here to this passage. All right, rewind the tape back to 14. Very good. So what's happening here? Because we have, you know, in Leviticus, if you're doing your read through the Bible, you know, it's law, 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 law. Brief narrative, more law, 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 law. Here in this section of Scripture, it's like parable, 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 parable. This passage here about money and adultery, parable. Okay, what's going on here? This is kind of weird. feels like maybe some more turbulence in the text. What is Jesus trying to convey, communicate, what does one have to do with the other? Why is Luke setting this right here in this section? Uh, and again, we're going to see the parable after this is going to be the rich man and Lazarus, which also has money as a theme, right? Isn't that interesting that this passage comes at money's a theme, money's a theme, this passage, money's a theme for the rich man and Lazarus, which we'll unpack next week. So what's Jesus doing? Uh, first of all, I think what Jesus is doing is, in the last section, he's shifting instruction about and to the disciples away from them to spotlighting the heart of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had ridiculed him, been angry at him, had sneered at him. As more and more people begin to follow Jesus, their angst and hatred of Christ grows more with every person that, that wants to see him and be a part of his ministry and what he's doing. There is a disdainful rejection, right? It's one thing just to reject a concept, but it's another thing to disdainfully reject a concept, isn't it, right? You, not only do you not like it, but you dislike it with a great degree of hatred, right? And so that's what's happening here in the hearts of the Pharisees. They are having a contempt a, for all the uprising around this. And Jesus here is now going to do something that's never quite been done to them before, at least not in this manner, I don't think. He's going to now put the camera spotlighting the heart of a Pharisee. All right? And notice what it says here the Pharisees are lovers of what? Money. Now, money is not good nor evil. Money is a neutral thing. Money is just money, right? You find a bag of money, you can bring it to me later. It's okay, right? <laughs> Anytime you want to do that, feel led to do that. You know, when we look at the New Testament, one thing we see is a line that's drawn between the Jews and the Greeks in the New Testament. And the Bible tells us over and over, the Jews seek power, right? So what does that mean? They want money, I think what they want with their money is, you know, money buys you power, right? Did you, you realize that? You've got a lot of money. You've got power. You can make things happen the way you want them to happen. You can get things to unfold. You can make people do things you want them to do if you have money. Because your view of money is, in this scenario, money is about my comfort. Money is about what it affords me. Money is about what it buys me in other people's lives and, and in situations. It's about my comfort, my luxury, my enjoyment. And you view it that way. Now, we just heard the parable of the dishonest um, manager. 
And what we learned from that was what? We should use our money for what? We should use it to make forever friends, friends in eternity, friends who will uh, be with us forever because uh, all these pleasures that we can buy now are fading. Now, you contrast that in the New Testament, the Greeks are viewed differently, right? What do they seek? Are they seeking money and power? Now, the Bible tells us that Greeks are after wisdom. They want to know about things that are beautiful. They want to know, they seek philosophy and the things that are beautiful in this world. Like, that's the way, and so you see the different addresses for them both, right? There is a certain way that Jews are addressed whenever Peter preaches in Acts On the day of Pentecost, he says, You have heard of the God who created, how the prophets spoke about Him, and then he unpacks the prophecies the Jews have been given. That works great whenever you're dealing with people who have like religious dots in their head, and evangelism is just about connecting the dots. But I'm telling you, particularly if you're younger in this room, you growing up in church, and I'm probably looking more at my kids than anything, you're going to be surrounded increasingly by people who are more like the Greeks. They don't have religious dots in their head. So they don't have concepts of God or concepts of sin or any of those things in their mind. So you're going to have to start where Paul started at Mars Hill. Where, where, where did he start? Did he start with the God of the Old Testament and the prophets of old? What did he say? You got this shrine here to an unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God. And then you begin making the, you, you have to put the dots in place and then connect them. That's a little bit of a different thing we're seeing happening now with evangelism. Anyway, back to the text. Um, So they're lovers of money. They want power. Uh, They heard all these things, all these riddles. And what's it say they do? They ridicule him. Right? They're making fun of Jesus here in this passage. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, because Jesus is aware of this, right? It's one thing for people to make fun of you, right? It's another thing for you to know about them making fun of you, right? Particularly if you're the blunt of the joke. Here we see Jesus says something. You are those who justify yourselves before men. And what's it say next? Comma, but God knows what? God knows your hearts. You ever heard somebody try to do something good in your life and they come up to you and it just doesn't go the way they intended it for it to go. And they'll say, you know, just a big, big fiasco. And they'll say, God knows my heart in this situation. Or if you're, or if you're confronting somebody and, and you say, you know, you just can't do this. This is wrong. Uh, you're, you're making a decision that is, is not in keeping with the word. God knows my heart in this decision, okay? Like they, and they, touch their, they always touch their heart when they say that too. I don't know if that's to like, it's an emotional ploy thing, right? Well, here is, the, here is the happy and terrifying truth of Scripture, right? God does know your heart, right? He knows it to the degree that you don't. The Bible warns us against our own heart, the heart being the thinking process, not just the, the meaty, you know, four-chamber muscle in your chest that's keeping you alive, but your center of being, what motivates you to do what you do. And, and I hope you hear today that uh, it is certainly the best to do the right things for the right reasons. And Pharisees were doing some right things, right? Pharisees wore their tassels, all four tassels, just in the right place and they had their frontals on right had to wear frontals on their forehead they had their plates their chest plates frontals on their forehead chest plates they dressed with their regalia presenting themselves to the community in a particular light and way and they are seen by the community as being good and holy and righteous because of the garments they wear 
the tassels being in correct places, the frontals being on, and the breastplate being there, making it to temple at the correct times, and performing offerings at the correct times. And what Jesus is saying here in this passage is, this is all an abomination to God. Because you're doing all these external things to present a religious persona so that other people in the community will think you're godly, but you're not internally. Your heart is not doing these things out of an operation for fear of God or godliness. Your heart is doing these things and these externals so that other people in your community will think you're godly. Woo boy, we're getting in the kitchen now, aren't we? Huh? Pastor, I come to church every Sunday in my finest, right? Pastor, I make it to church sometimes 20 minutes before church starts. Now, I don't always get in here when Michael starts, but I do make it here 10 minutes before church starts, right? That's got to count for something. Uh, Pastor, I give so much. Pastor, I donate my time for missions. Pastor, I do what I do and I do. And here's the mistake I hope you're not making this morning. I hope you don't think that if you wear a certain attire and you show up at a certain time and the community sees you showing up and sees your car parked here in the parking lot, that this somehow makes you holy or righteous or good because it does not. It does not. Okay? So that's what it says. That's what this verse means. Now let's move over to the next passage here. Let's talk about the law, right? Law don't go around here, law dog. What movie is that, you know? Nobody knows? One of the best films of all time? Yeah, thank you, Aaron. Me and you'll get together later and watch Tombstone, okay? Thanks. All two of us that knew what it was right away. That's one of the best movies ever made. Nobody else knew that? All right, y'all need to watch Tombstone later. Anyhow, the law and the prophets were until John. Here's what it's going to boil down to is, Pharisees are using the law in a particular way to present themselves as religious and godly to the community. And Jesus is saying here, what side of the law are you on? Are you on... God's side of the law here? Are you on what all of the law and the prophets are pointing to? Or are you on a different side here? Uh, John is mentioned here, which is interesting to me that he's mentioned. But I think the reason John is mentioned here is because, look what it says here. The law and the prophets were until John. This is signifying the end of the Old Testament prophet office, right? This verse is. Jesus is telling us here, this is the conclusion of it. Sometimes I'll turn on TV or whatever and I'll see prophet and prophetess so-and-so proclaiming this. And I just shake my head because I think of this verse, right? The Bible tells us there's no more prophets in the sense of Old Testament prophets. Now, what was the job of an Old Testament prophet? Old Testament prophet was a mouthpiece who spoke on behalf of God to the people. Particularly their message was what? The Lamb, the Messiah is coming, right? So they're all preaching. And remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist? He said, John the Baptist is the greatest that was born among women. That's a lot of people to choose from, right? He's greater than Elijah, greater than all these Old Testament prophets. John is a transitional figure. He's a lot like Samuel in the Old Testament. Do you remember Samuel in the Old Testament at the end of Judges here? Samuel is the last of the judges of Israel of old, right? He's a transitional figure. He's going to see the beginning of a, theoc- of a kingly uh, institution being put in place, and they will now report to a king. There will not be a judge. There will not be a theocracy. So he serves kind of the last in that office. John the Baptist is the last to serve here. But why does Jesus say he is the greatest of all the prophets? He says it because of this. All the messages of the Old Testament were, the Lamb is coming. 
The Messiah is coming. What did John the Baptist get to do that was different? He, got, he said, behold, the kingdom of God is coming. Make straight, prepare the way. Make straight the roadways, right? Prepare the way. And then he got to do what? Physically point to him within his vicinity and say, and here he is. Behold the Lamb of God, right? I'm not worthy to touch his sandals. No Old Testament prophet got to do that. John the Baptist got to do that. That's what makes him the last one. That's what makes him the great one. Is Not only did he announce the Messiah was coming, he announced the Messiah was coming and said, and here he is. No Old Testament prophet got to do that. That made him the greatest. All right, since the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Okay, what is going on with this verse? This is a different type construction of a verse here. Uh, what does it mean the good news preached forces his way in? Uh, good news of the kingdom here, I think, there's a, anytime the, the kingdom is preached, there's a dynamic that is, reception that is there. And what does he mean when he says that? Well, there is actually, I'm not a proponent of this. I don't like doing this, but I think for the sake of this passage, because of the nature of it, this is the best way to do this one. I don't like to often tell you, well, this is one possibility, this is one possibility, this is one possibility, and this commentator says, this commentator says. I'm just going to give you kind of the cleft nose versions. There is four ways to understand verse 16 in the latter half. Okay, Four ways to quickly understand it. This verb for forced only appears in the New Testament twice. In all of the New Testament, two times is it there, okay? Once in Matthew, when it's in Matthew, it's kind of a different context. It talks about the men of violence forcing their way in. So I don't think the context is there. Remember, whenever we're trying to understand what a verse means, it's context, context, context. How many of you are in real estate or have ever done real estate? What's the most important thing in real estate? Location, location, location. What's the most important thing in Bible interpretation? Context, context, context. You can't know what a verse means until you know the context of it, right? Um, we're not talking about this right now, but for example, I've heard a lot of bad teaching on the word love. Agape, you know, they talk about there's three words in Greek for love. Have you all ever heard the spill? One is a special type of God love, and that's agape, and that's special. Until you read the Septuagint, which has the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it talks about Tamar being like raped loved with agape as the word by her, was it cousin or brother? I can't remember who it was. So it's context again, context, context, context. In a similar fashion here, what are we looking at in this passage? Well, some people have looked at this as kind of two negative understandings and two positive ones. And before I get into those, let me say this. This verb is actually found in a tense of verb in Greek, which we don't actually have in English, called middle passive form. Middle passive form, let me break it down and then see if I can explain this. First of all, middle means this, it is something that you yourself exude or do on another. So for example, an an example of a middle voice would be this, the boy kicked the dog. So the boy here is performing the action of kicking the dog. And passive is exactly what it means. The, the object of the person in that, that narrative is receiving an action done to them. So in the same kind of understanding, the dog bit the boy. That would be an example of passive. The boy's not doing the action. He's receiving the action being done to him. And quite frankly, if he kicked the dog, then he probably should have been bit by the dog, right? <laughs> so anyhow, that didn't go over in the first service, by the way, but I thought it was funny. Anyway, 
But this passage is a middle passive voice, which has left interpreters struggling with it a bit. I think what we need to understand it is the larger narrative of Luke, and I'll look at that. But some have said this. I don't think these first three are correct, but I'm going to quickly give them to you and then just tell you what I think is going on here. Some people have said that this forced into the kingdom, that this is actually a rebuke Jesus is giving towards the zealots of the day. A zealot is someone who's trying to forcibly cause the kingdom to enter in. So those who are usurpers trying to overthrow the Roman government and usher in the kingdom of God. Uh, what comes to my mind is like Peter, whenever they're arresting Jesus and he draws his sword, he's being very zealous in that action and he cuts off the soldier's ear, right? That's a zealous action. What's Jesus do? We're not doing this, right? He heals the man's ear and, you know, he knows this is part of God's plan and will. So some have said, and that's kind of on the negative side, it is that. Others have said that uh, this is essentially Jesus kind of um, urging in a sort of passive sense, all people to come into the kingdom. But I feel that this loses some of the weight of the action that's involved in the verb. So I don't think that's quite right either. Uh, Some have said that everybody's just forcing their way into the kingdom. And what I think is we have to kind of look at the larger narrative of Luke and what's happening here in this passage. And I think one of the things we're seeing happen here is there is... Uh, Jesus here is in this passage talking about the law uh, and he's talking about the misuse of the law and the law was always meant to be kind of this roadmap to get people to Christ and to the gospel but the Pharisees had sort of taken the roadmap and they had twisted it to what suited them best that made them the most money and was most convenient for them and gave them an an appearance of godliness to all those that were around them. And what Jesus is saying here is, you know, I think what he's saying here with this context is, listen, you have taken what was meant to be the roadmap to people to have salvation and relationship with God. You've twisted it and you've made it into hurdles for people to get to Jesus, for people to get to the good news, the gospel, because here's the reality of dealing with the law, right? The law is impossible for us to keep. When you take your Bible out and you look at this thing, right? I mean, just just take it just a second. And what do you got in the Old Testament here? This is the Old Testament, right? Right here. This is the New Testament. This right here is over and over and over for thousands of years, people trying to keep the law and what? Failing to do so. They can't get it done, right? And when it comes to the law, the Bible tells us that you've got three positions you can take. You can keep the law perfectly. You can be judged for every single small violation of the law that you do in your whole lifetime as you stand before God. Or you can embrace Jesus Christ as having lived and kept the law perfectly, fulfilled the law perfectly, as we'll see in the next passage, And you can accept that on your behalf, his death on the cross and his dying and his suffering as good news for you because he has paid what you never could in an eternity of hell. It's up to you how you want to receive this. Do you want to be on the pharisaical side of the law where you're appearing to keep the law but your heart is not? Or do you want to be on the side of the law with Christ? And that brings us back to where we are here in this passage. Like, what does this mean forces their way in? Well, I I think what this means here 
is we look at the larger narrative and what's coming after this passage. What is happening here is as this good news of the kingdom is being preached and proclaimed from Jesus' ministry, you can't stop people from coming to Jesus. You can't do it, right? One of my favorite passages in the Bible is uh, when God starts a good work, He'll what? He'll finish it, won't He, right? So I think what we're going to see happen in the New Testament is the following. We're going to see clusters of lepers calling out to Jesus to be made clean. We're going to see... We're going to see nursing mothers turn to Christ and be brought, bringing their, bringing their infants to Him. We're going to see a rich young ruler seek Jesus out to know how to have eternal life. We're going to see blind beggars at Jericho crying out to Jesus, Oh, son of David, help us, right? We're going to see a small publican climb a tree just so he can catch a glimpse of Jesus passing by. We're going to see multitudes of people heralding Jesus Christ as He enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, praising His holy name, laying down those branches and saying, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. You will not stop people from coming to Christ. To quote the great theologian Toto from the 80s, remember Toto, some of you? There's nothing that a hundred men or more could ever do Hurdle after hurdle may be put in place, but they will come to Christ. Okay? So the Pharisees used the law to look godly. They used the law to condemn Jesus. They used the law to ridicule Jesus. But a new age has dawned here. Then people are pressing themselves into this kingdom. And, And it doesn't matter. The Pharisees are creating these extra hurdles to get there. And Jesus is saying it doesn't matter. They will come no matter what you put in front of them. Uh, It also begs the question of this too. Where are we with that, right? How are we treating the law? What side of the law are we on? Are we on the side of the law where we are presenting a well-manicured image of godliness to those around us, but internally our hearts are far from the one true and living God? How do we know? Well, that's when we get the next couple verses. Verse 17, look at this. Easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. See, one of the things the Pharisees say, Jesus is just, he's abolishing the law. Jesus isn't abolishing the law. He's fulfilling the law. Remember what I said? It's the roadmap that's meant to make people see Christ and see God's mercy. He's fulfilling it. You know, in Hebrew, it says not one jot or tittle, right? The Bible tells us not one jot or tittle. There's a, Hebrew doesn't have vowels like we do. They have little points, little dots, either below the letter or above it. And the Bible tells us not one dot, not one tittle, not one little mark of the law will be lost. It is eternally there forever. It won't be lost. Jesus didn't come for licentiousness. He didn't come to give us a license to sin. He didn't come to say everything's on the table. You can do whatever you want to do. He came to fulfill what we could never do to keep the law perfectly on our behalf. Here's here's the issue he's getting at, right? And, and And this is where we begin to see why verse 18 is becoming more clear. Look at verse 18. It's about adultery here. He's connecting it all together. Can we just advance? There we go. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is a new covenant that's coming in. God is establishing a new covenant with his people. What is another covenant that we have here on earth? Well, another covenant that we have on earth is marriage. It's marriage, right? And here's the reality. 
in a marriage, that's where a real person is seen, right? When you're married to somebody, you know them intimately well. You see them in such a way that nobody else ever sees them that way, right? I don't know if any of you have Wesleyan backgrounds or not, but John Wesley actually thought people could become perfect in this life. They could get to a point where they didn't sin anymore on this side of glory. Did you know that? He taught that and thought that. He never thought it was attainable for himself, but he thought he saw that in other people. I I always wanted to be like, if I could build a time machine, I'd go back and be like, Brother Wesley, thank you for your work. Have you talked to these people's spouses? Right? (laughs) You need to talk to spouses because they know the truth of the reality of the situation. They're the ones that live with them every day. And, you know, when you're in a marriage, you got two options. And your options are this. You're either staying married to this person because you're afraid of what would happen if you didn't stay married to that person and you will do what they want to do out of drudgery and duty, but not out of joy and love and delight. Okay? That's one, there's two ways to live your marriage, one or the other. Okay? Uh, that's just the reality of it. You either live your marriage out of duty and drudgery or you live your marriage out of love and delight. And Jesus here is making a comparison This is how the law is viewed, right? I love my wife and all the things she does for me in our family, right? She keeps her house clean. She does our laundry. She did like 15 or 20 loads of laundry this week. Now, I don't know if she'd tell you it was her joy to do laundry, but she did them, right? And I thanked her for it. I told her she's a wonderful wife. Thank you for keeping us all in nice clothes and and keeping us, you know, smelling good and everything because clothes get nasty and start to stink after a while too, right? This is a... But it's not a job anybody volunteers for, right? Now, if I went home and said, woman, you will do the laundry. You will get all 15 loads of laundry done this week. And there will be no back talk. You think she would have joyfully and delightfully gave her attention to doing the laundry this week? She might have got it done. But I bet there would have been some murmuring under her breath, right? (laughs) You know? I could have made that task horrendous for her. I try not to, right? Try not to. That didn't happen, by the way, but I could have. She still did it, and there was a love, there was a joy, there was a delight in taking care of her family, even though the work was not always fun or one that you would sign up for. In a similar regard, this is our relationship with the law now. We want to keep the law in a way that we are delighted that we have this salvation. We are delighted that we know Christ. And we don't want to use the law now to ridicule others or to downsize others or to make people feel terrible and to hit them with those kind of comments. We want to be people who are people marked by joy. (laughs) We can't keep the law perfectly ourselves. Uh, We need to be encouraging each other to do it as we can do it out of joy for what God has done. See, because he's comparing, you know, the Pharisees' adultery with spiritual adultery, which is a theme over and over again in the Old Testament. And by the way, while I'm on this, let me say this. The Pharisees had, you know, if you have been divorced, there are certainly provisions for divorce in the Bible. Uh, I personally have never counseled divorce to anybody. I struggle with that. But I'm going to be honest with you and tell you, I've seen situations and narratives where one person in the marriage, and it ain't always the man, is abusing manipulating and cheating on the other one, okay? In these situations, there's provisions for that, right? They're, they're being abusive, and it's just about impossible uh, to deal with those situations. 
What the Pharisees had done, though, with any of those provisions that Moses made, is they had made it nearly impossible for women to be divorced from their husbands. But men could easily be divorced. And this is before alimony and Social Security and all these things. So if you were a divorced woman, all you had to do was say, you know what? I don't like you anymore. You don't please me anymore. You could move on to the next wife. You could take the same vows, right? Because, you know, why would Jesus make this comparison? Well, here's what I think is happening. Jesus is saying, look, you're abusing the law and you're abusing money. You're viewing money in a very worldly sense and not in a godly sense, not making those investments the way you should. You're not, you're not viewing the law correctly. You're on the wrong side of the law, right? You're just using it from a very fear of man perspective. So if you're not viewing money correctly and you're not viewing the law correctly, where else are you making mistakes in your life? And another place you're making a mistake is in your marriage. It's in your marriage. You're going to just divorce this woman, no problem. Take a vow with this one. And then whenever you get tired of her, get you another one. Because let's face it, life's short. You've got to be happy, right? If you think that's your view of money, it's going to be your same view of your marriage. And isn't that where our culture is? What is, what is a view of marriage that is right? This is what makes the Christian view of marriage so radically different. We made a covenant and we make a daily choice to love our spouses. We make a weekly, daily choice with our money to do things in a way that honors the Lord. Not because we're afraid we're going to get struck by a lightning bolt if we don't, but because we love the Savior who first loved us. And we're going to demonstrate that love with our money, with how we deal with the law, and how we deal with our spouses. All right, one last interesting observation that I think is kind of funny. Have you ever noticed how many women love... Uh, you ever seen that, sh- that TV station ID where they talk about murder all the time? People murdering people and getting away with it and all this stuff. I remember I watched one. I- I'm just, it's amazing to me how many women tell me they watch these murder shows about people that murder other people. And I remember one lady telling me once about a guy that... I think it was a woman, actually. She was going to murder her husband because she lived in a very conservative, Christian, evangelical community. And I think she thought getting away with murder was better than going through the shame of a divorce publicly. (laughs) That sounds like a joke, but was a reality thing there. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, I oftentimes wonder, do women watch these shows about murder for the same reason, particularly the ones where people got away with it, for the same reasons that men watch professional sports because you just want to see somebody who actually made it and got it, right? No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. But anyhow, <laughs> the men laughed. The women didn't. Sorry, ladies. I'll get the men another day, okay? I'll get them another day, all right? How do you serve? Do you serve out of delight or out of duty? You talk about your marriage, talk about your money, think about yourself, where are you? Is it all about you and your happiness and your self-centeredness? Or is it all about pleasing and serving God? Not because you have to, but because you want to. Where are you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to be a people motivated by love. Help us to be people that are married and faithful, who view our marriages not for our own joy and good, Not because it's just something that is required, but something that we praise your name for. Help us to be a people who do things for joyful reasons. Lord, even some of us may may do things for the wrong reasons, and we know it's better to do right things for wrong reasons than to just do wrong things, but 
God, help us to just constantly reflect the glory of knowing you. God, if there's anyone here today that the Lord's been drawing on them, they've been called this morning, there, there is a call to come and know you. Won't, you. won't you come forward, Lord, and won't you impress on that heart? Won't you turn them to you, God? Lord, uh, we know that there is nowhere we could turn to have a more fulfilled life, a more joyous life than one that is surrendered to you. Help us to do this today in your precious name. Amen. So where are you today? You know, as I preach this sermon, I'm preaching at myself. If you've ever seen my Facebook profile, it says, I'm a recovering Pharisee. Are you here today and you realize, ooh, God has seen past my clothes and he's seen past my my Christian talk and he's seen past all that. He's seen me at the heart and I desperately need Christ. Help me this morning to turn to you, Lord. Or maybe you're here today and you just want to thank him for how graciously he's dealt with you. That you want to be on that right side. and You love being a person of joy. Won't you make that commitment in your heart and just thank him for that? Or maybe you want to join this church, be part of this family, be baptized. I'll be in the back to receive you as we sing. Please stand.